0: And on that handout sheet, you'll notice that we are in part four of our Hebrew series entitled Our Faithful High Priest. And I entitled, entitled this morning's message, Hard Rest to Get. And I want to begin with a parable from Jesus. Uh, Jesus told a parable called the parable of the sower, the guy that sowed seed. A lot of you are familiar with that. If not, I'm going to tell you the story in a moment. But it's recorded in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke. All three synoptic gospels. Now, when the Bible says one thing, it's important. When it says it twice, you've got to pay attention. When it says it three times, it's really trying to get your attention. For all three gospels to have included this parable, it's of utmost importance that we pay attention So here's the story very simply. There was a farmer going out to sow seed. Jesus said that that is the word of God being sown out into our hearts. So you can picture as we're talking about God being involved in our lives and the gospel uh, being issued out to you. It's as if seed is being sown all throughout this area and it's landing on our hearts, which is the different types of soil. Now, the first one, he said, as he sowed seed, it hit the pathway And the bird immediately swooped down and picked it up and ate it. And there's no way that it could take root. He said, that's like those whose hearts are so hard that instantly when it hits, they don't understand, they don't care. They don't get it. It's not going anywhere. And the enemy just swoops in like a bird, takes it right out. You're going to walk out of here with absolutely no impact whatsoever. You don't even want to be here. That kind of attitude, right? The second one, he said, some of it falls on ground that is rocky, and so it has a little bit of soil to it. There's a little bit for it to sink into, but it doesn't have any root. It doesn't have any depth. So there's an excitement. It springs up right away. There's this, yeah, that was an awesome message, and I love what God's doing here. And then when difficult times come. You get home and all of a sudden everything goes chaotic at home and you just say, you know what? That was cool at the time, but I'm over it. I don't care anymore. And you bail out on the things that God has for you. That's the second type of soil. The third one says, well, there was also some that actually took root, uh, excited about it, fired up, believes for a while tries to walk with God for a while, and then the cares of this world, the pleasures of life, it comes up like thorns and chokes out what the seed has produced and ultimately becomes unfruitful and falls away. It said, and then there was a type of soil that when, it, when the seed falls on it, it's prepared, it's ready, it's cultivated, it's willing those are the type of people that receive the word of God, engage with it, have good, honest hearts, cling to it, allow it to soak into their life, ready to respond off of it, submit to God, these types of things. And it says, and that seed produces whatever God sowed in, whether that's 30, 60 or 100 fold. Yeah, that's a story. Now, that parable is a shortened version of what we're about to study today in Hebrews. So if you go through Hebrews and you go, man, that was an intriguing message. However, I have no idea what he's talking about. You can go back to the parable and go, oh, look, it's easier that way. He told a little story. What it's saying is that there's a difference from one to the other. So let me ask you this. What is the difference? If the soils represent us... What about us? What is different that allows one to be rocky hard and the other to be willing and cultivated and prepped? I would suggest to you that it's all condition of the heart. Yeah? So we can't control everything else, but what we can influence is the condition of our heart to receive the word of God. Therefore, the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. We must prepare our hearts to receive what he has. He has. We must prepare our hearts to receive what he has. Jesus Christ has initiated and done all the heavy lifting. He is the one that died so that we might be free. He is the one that has issued out the good news to us, that he has reconciled us to God. But it is responsible upon us to unite that truth with faith. It is important, and that is going to be the big focus of the passage in Hebrews, and he's going to use examples in the past when God led them all the way up, said, I'm going to do all this for you, but because of unbelief, they rejected the whole idea. And the warning is this don't be like that. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, it's page 1002 in the Bible's under the seats. 1002 Hebrews chapter four, verse one, while we're getting ready for that, there is one word that's going to be used over and over and over. So it may make sense up front to define it. The problem is, is that it's used in the Bible at least five different ways. And the author will jump from one to the next without giving you a heads up. It'll bounce around. He'll use it like this, and he'll use it like that, and then he'll use it like this. And that creates a lot of the confusion. So if you take notes, and you that's why there's little lines on the paper. If you take notes, you may want to jot these things down. The word is rest. What does rest mean? Well, it's used at least five different ways, one commentary said. Now, I believe that there's more. But let me give you the five basic ones so you can kind of track through and go, well, is the author talking about this one? This one, this one, right? Kind of go through it. First one is this. When God says rest in the Bible, sometimes he's referring to when he rested on the seventh day of creation. Remember how it says in Genesis 2-2, and, and God was making the world in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested. Remember that? Now the intriguing piece about that, many scholars have noted, is that on the days of creation it would say... Uh, And he created this, and morning and evening it was the first day. Remember that? And then he goes, morning, evening, second day, morning, evening, third day. Notice that in the seventh day it's different. There's no evening. It's just morning. And the idea there seems to be a suggestion that when God rested, it was continual from that point forward. When it came to the creation of this world and how God set things up, is that God then went into a perpetual state of enjoyment of his creation from that moment on there was a rest from God's works in that way and he could now enjoy them all right so one of the ways rest is used is God's rest on the seventh day of creation number two the promised land in the old testament we remember that as God got Israel out of Egypt and bondage he was leading them to a promised land. That area became known as the rest. Why? Because he's saying you have enemies and difficulty and trial in the wilderness. When you get into the promised land, you're going to have challenges and difficulty taking control of the land. But I will subdue your enemies and you will be at rest. So that idea of blessing and inheritance in the promised land, that is also known as Rest, And that will be one of the primary ways it's used in this passage. Number three, peace of God in what he has done. Peace in God in what he has done. That's stuff like our salvation, peace with God, that resting, knowing that Jesus Christ defeated the enemy in death on the cross. Wow, I feel internally like there is a peace. I'm not in animosity with God anymore. I know that Jesus Christ has reconciled me that when he traded his life for mine, God now sees the works of Christ and not my works, right? That's rest. You don't have to constantly be thinking, God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't love me. There's a rest that comes in. Number four, peace in victory from enemies. Now, what does that mean? It means Wow, I'm loaded up into this addiction. I'm having a very difficult time. Jesus, I need you to walk with me and talk with me. The Holy Spirit comes alongside you, leads you out making the right choices, bringing about health into your life. You then break out of that addiction, that enemy that's been holding on, and you have rest. That's another way. So blessings of freedom right now. Number five, heaven. Ultimately, The greatest rest you can have is when Jesus finally shuts down the garbage and sets you free. I mean, that's pretty basic, right? I mean, isn't that what we're kind of all looking for? In heaven, there's an internal rest that even while we're still here, we have that flesh versus spirit fight where you're constantly disappointed in your actions going, man, really? That's me. That's embarrassing. I keep wanting to do this and then it doesn't work out. And then and then I find myself lost in sin and that's embarrassing and horrifying and you understand that in heaven all that tension is removed that's pretty awesome it's one of the excitements of heaven yeah all right so if it's used five different ways at least and i would suggest there are more which way is he using it in this passage well he's flip-flopping and jumping around so you can kind of review back to your notes all right so let's read it we're going to be in chapter four and we're just doing 13 verses one through 13 today and when I read through it, if you're anything like me, here's how it's going to feel. I'm going to start reading and you're tracking with me right off the bat. Instantly, however, you get lost. You're going to read it and you're going to go, wait, I thought I knew what he was talking about. Now I'm totally lost. And then all of a sudden you're going to track again. You're going to go, oh, okay, great. All right, I'm with you. I'm with that. Wait, what? Disappears again. Then it shows back up and you go, oh, good clothes. All right, that's what you're going to basically feel. All right, that's this passage. Where you're going to go, this is complicated. Okay, I'm going to suggest to you that it's written in a, because the way it's translated in English, it's written in a very convoluted way. It's not quite as hard as it appears. You'll find that out a little bit later on as we tear it apart, but let's read it for context. Then we'll pray for the word. Here we go. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, quote, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Little convoluted. Yeah, here we go. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray for the word heavenly father. We are about to walk through a glorious passage, but one, Father, for whatever reason, is clouded to us. And so what we're asking for is clarity. What we're asking for is that whatever's important that you want us to know, Holy Spirit, you know how to tailor that individually. Whatever we need to know, I ask that you would download that to us today. I pray, Lord, that you would not allow the enemy to snatch it away. I pray that you would show us how to cultivate our hearts, prepare, listen, and engage. Father, change us today by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you got little parts of it? Other parts, you're like, huh? All right. It's not quite as hard as it seems. I had to read through it like 13 times before I even had a clue what we were talking about. All right? So let's take a look at it little by little. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, pause, that's encouraging. We're about to get into a warning. We haven't hit the warning yet. Right now we're still encouraging. Why? Because let us picture, it is likely that we have a Jew talking to Jews. They've been talking about this Old Testament story. It's been talking about how Israel blew it. And then ultimately God allowed them to have some rest. That story I should probably tell you now because it influences everything. So let me recap. I told you last week. The idea was is that God snapped the neck of the Egyptian empire and the Hebrew slaves, those in bondage, came out underneath Moses, God's deliverer. They went into the wilderness and shortly thereafter he took them right to what? the borderline of the promised land, and said, I will be with you. I want you to go into the land, fight and clear it, and I will give you rest. What happened? They sent 12 spies in. Ten of them came back and said, not going to happen. We're little, they're huge, bad go. We are all slaves by nature. They are warriors. We're never going to make it. So you know what? As great as that land is, I appreciate God's effort. Not going to happen for us. I'm not going. Two of the spies said, hold up. Did God or did God not say that he's going to fight for us? Who cares what the enemy looks like? So what? We're not warriors, but we can do this. If God said we can do it, we can do it. Of course we're going to go in. Come on, everybody. Nobody went with those guys. Israel said, That freaks me out. I don't believe that that's really going to happen. I think we're walking into a trap. Let's just get out of here. Okay, so what happened? God brought them up to the territory, said, I want you to trust me on this one. They said, I'm not going to do that. And they bailed out and they didn't get to go in. God said, because of your disbelief, because you're saying that my might is not strong enough for you, because you refuse to believe me at my word, you will never get in. All y'all. I don't know if God said that. <laughs> that whole generation. You're done. I'm going to have you walk around in the desert till every single one of you is dead. Your kids will get in, but you will never enter my rest. Make sense? That's the story. So, we now go back. Some of the Jews that the author is talking to, it appears that there was a bit of a concern... That when they did get into the rest, that was it. When they got into the promised land, that was all God's rewards and blessings. And it was done. The door closed. He's saying, hold on, that's stupid. And he's going to make an argument on why that's not smart. He'll say, wait a second. The promise to get into the rest of God, to get into his blessings, is still going, you guys. Of course. We're still looking forward. This is great. He's encouraging them. It says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, whatever that means, still stands, let us fear. Now he's getting into a warning. The word fear, I want you to be thinking of not in a terrifying way, but I want you to think of fear as a motivator. And here's why. Got a big game today, yeah? Which I just found out, in Vegas alone... Bets on the Super Bowl are at $90 million. That's, that's only one location. That's not even all the online stuff or Atlantic City or anybody else. Big game. Now, what if the guy said, man, what are we going to do? What's our game plan? And they're like, you know what? We got to max it out. If we do not max it out, we're not going to win this game. You know what? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to run like crazy because I'm afraid if I don't run, I'm not going to outrun that guy and get the ball. Okay, do you understand he just used the word I'm afraid? But it's not a paralyzing fear. It was, I'm all in. I'm locked. And if I go in, I'm going to give it everything I have, because if I don't, I'm not going to be able to reach that. That's the word he's trying to use here. All right? Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us take it seriously. Let us lock in with motivation, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. I Means there is something that we need to do on our side of things to engage with God. That may be a cultivation of the soil of our hearts to listen and respond and say, yes, Lord. It may be a matter of persevering and hanging in there. It may be a matter of digging in and saying, Lord, mold me and change me, whatever it is. Because as an author, he's looking at his audience in the same way that I'm looking at you. And I don't know your hearts. I have no idea where you're at with God. I can read the fruit in your life, but I don't know. He said, listen, I'm afraid that some of you out of sheer disobedience are not walking with God at all. And I'm not okay with that. So I need to remind you, listen, the promise of entering his rest still stands. We better take this seriously because I'm not okay with any of us missing the boat. That's the point. moves on. Verse two, for good news came to us just as to them. Do you understand? God has always been full of good news. We have this bogus philosophy that the old Testament is mean. God new Testament is squishy. Nice. God, right in the old Testament. God only kills people that. Okay. That's not true. Think about one of the most popular words in the old Testament is deliver a deliverer. Remember in Judges, like the worst period in all of Israel's history, where all they did was stupid stuff over and over and over. What was the constant word? And God heard their cries and sent them a deliverer. That's good news. Hey, look, you're in trouble. I'm freeing you. That's good news. God has always poured out good news on his people. Old Testament, New Testament. However, the only reason that we see it is slightly different is when Jesus came He revealed God completely, gave the best news, which was, I will die for your sins and I can reconcile you to God. Because that great news was revealed, we go, oh, the New Testament's nicer than the Old Testament. God has always been loving. God has always been compassionate. God has always been kind. God has always held boundaries. But make no mistake, they receive good news. We receive good news. We have the gospel. They receive the good news of, hey, you can get into this land. I will fight for you. It's going to be tough, but we can do this. It says, but the message that they heard, getting into the promised land, did not benefit them. Why? They didn't go. Why? Because they were not, and this phrase in Greek can mean two things. The ESV takes it one way. They said... Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. That's one way it could say it. The other way says, and they did not combine it with faith themselves. Either way, the answer is the same. But what the ESV took is said, the reason it didn't benefit them is they would not lock in with Joshua and Caleb, the guys who believed it. They were saying, no, I'm going to go my own way. We'll never make it. We can never do it. I'm freaked out. God could never do that in my life. Right? And they just bailed out. So the good news that he presented to them had no benefit for them. Because they refused to bring faith into the matter. And any time you hear the word faith in scripture, I need you to understand that it's the word trust. Here's why. We have this funny thing that we've created in our minds that faith is like concentrating really hard here's what i mean hey do you have enough faith to be healed what does that mean what do you mean Do you have enough faith to be healed which by the way if anyone ever says to you you don't have enough faith to be healed just punch him in the face okay it's the stupidest thing i've ever heard all right anyway and then, and then go my pastor said so all right so. all right that's probably not christ-like all right here we go uh What we do is we say, do I have enough faith for that? Do I have enough faith for that? What does that mean? And then you go, and you you try really hard. I'm thinking really hard. I'm concentrating. It's almost like you tried to make something levitate and you just stare at it "Mm," and you look at it, right? Okay. That's how we've made faith. We don't quite know what it means. And so we just try to hang on and tighten up. That's what, that's what it means. Do you have enough faith to believe? I don't know. I'm trying really hard. Okay. Can we be a bit more practical than that? Here's the practicality of how it worked with Israel. Hey, look! There's a line to the Promised Land. It's super scary. You gonna go? No. All right, you don't have the faith to do it. Are you gonna go? Yeah. Oh, look! Faith made you move forward. That's it. We try to make it all dramatic. Okay, here's the deal. Do you have enough faith to uh, combine it to be saved? I don't know. Jesus said, "I want you to do this." Did you do it? Weird. It's pretty practical. Are you going to operate as if it's true in trust that Jesus knows what he's talking about? How are you living and moving and actively going? Because that will demonstrate your level of faith. Make sense? You're not earning anything. It's just obvious whether you have any faith or not. If I said, hey, we're going to do bridgeway stage diving. And what I want you to do is I want you to just go and I want you to launch right off this. Just what? Right now? I know you can go. I don't know if I have enough faith to do. Well, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out, huh? Because if you do, if you pansy out and you don't jump, I, it's clear, you don't have enough faith. Now, if you launch into the crowd and just like knock over some woman that, that we know you have faith. That was a, that was a stupid choice, but you had faith. The idea is that your actions Show where your level of faith is. If you sit there and play this game and go, oh, dude, I'm totally into Jesus, totally into Jesus. And I look at your life and there's no evidence that you walk with Jesus. You're playing a game. Seriously? There's no faith there. You haven't even done anything that he's asked you to do. You haven't even walked with him. You haven't even, you said, oh yeah, no man, I'm totally surrendered. And then your life shows no evidence of surrender. You're fooling yourself. Yeah, that's the point. All right, move on. It says, verse 3, for we who have believed, oh, there's that word faith, trust, right? United it with Christ, right? For we who have believed are entering, that word is, it's a realized in principle, but it's not realized in fact yet. We're in the process of entering. For we who have believed are entering that rest. As he has said in Psalm 95:11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Meaning when he said they can't get in, there's still an opportunity to get in. And we who have believed are entering it. That's all he said. But then he adds some weird phrase at the end. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? Now we can look and we can go, oh, you know, there's this deep passage in scripture that says, you know, we were predestined before the foundations of the world and he selected us and he chose us. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about rest. When God created the world and then rested on the seventh day, He's perpetually resting from the foundation to the world, and He stopped the works. That's all it's saying. Let's not make it heavier than it needs to be. The other stuff's talked about later, but just not right here. Yeah. All right. Verse four. For He has somewhere spoken. There he goes again, being all generally like He doesn't know. It's Genesis two two. It's right at the beginning. He knows exactly where He's quoting. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day of creation in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Why did God rest? By the way, I'm going to tie my shoe here, so in case you're wondering what I'm doing, this is not an analogy. This is a tying of the shoe. There you go. (laughs) Why did God rest? God does not diminish in any capacity. That's actually a very powerful phrase. Here's why it matters to you. Is God sick of you yet? I mean, isn't that the game that we play, man? I remember when he first saved me, God, I just felt the love of God. And then, you know what? I've just been a Yahoo for the last 15 years. I've just been doing my own thing. You know what? God must be totally sick of me. Okay. What you just said was that he diminishes. He actually doesn't by his nature. He loves you as much now as he did at the beginning. His love does not decrease. It remains constant. That means he's just as enamored with you right now as he was when he saved you What's intriguing is you'll find out he was enamored with you before he saved you That's a pretty cool concept Now if god does not diminish and that's the reason why we thought it was so weird that jesus got tired Remember we had to talk about why that was he took on humanity remember that limitation If god doesn't get tired, why did he rest? well I think that there's two, two reasons why God rested. And there may be some more brilliant ones that I have no idea about, but I'll tell you this. I believe that the first one was that he rested in the sense of enjoyment and stepping back and going, check it. That's pretty awesome, right? It's the idea that when God creates something, it's perfect. It's amazing. And when you finish it, it's that step back, take a deep breath. Whoa. Wow. Now he, because he did it so amazing, does not diminish in his enjoyment of that. So all throughout the rest of creation, he's still going, huh? Huh? (laughs) Look at that. Okay. That's the idea of resting. It's the appreciation of what God made. I believe that's the first reason. The second reason is I believe it was role modeling. It's the same reason that you do with little kids. And you say, hey, you know what? You need to take a nap. And they're like, I don't want to take a nap. And you go, listen, we're all, uh, look, we're all tired. And you lay down on the pillow. You're not needing to take a nap. You're trying to get them to buy into it. The idea is God didn't need to rest, but he knew that we needed to rest based upon our design. We are not designed to be workaholics. We're not designed to keep going. We need rest. And so he, as a good parent, went, oh, look at us. I'm so tired. And we're like, yeah, great point. Oh, I'm tired, too. Okay, he's not tired, right? He's just being a good dad. Yeah, all right. It says, and again in this passage, meaning I already quoted it. Let me quote it again. They shall not enter my rest. If God rested and he's enjoying his creation and he's enjoying the freedom, he would love for us to be there with him. But because of the disobedience in Israel, he stated to them, you don't get to have that enjoyment. You're not listening to me. All right. Verse six. But since we have good news, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, then and because those who formally received good news failed to enter, we understand they screwed up because of disobedience. He again appoints a certain day calling it today saying through David so long afterward in Psalm 95 7 in the words I already said to you today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. That is the most convoluted way of saying this. Some of you are all freaked out that the door closed and in the Old Testament all the rewards were taken. That's bogus. And here's how we know it's bogus. Because Moses was right here when God said you will not enter my rest. Then, hundreds of years later, David quotes it and says, Today, don't harden your heart, so you can get into the rest. If David's talking about it, clearly the door's not shut. That's it. That was the whole point. Do you understand? It's not that complicated. He's just citing examples of saying, David's still talking about it hundreds of years later. Now I'm talking about it thousands of years later. So here's the point. As long as you're alive... It's today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Quit saying, oh, I missed it. and Maybe there's no opportunity for me. And listen. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Period. And he moves on. Verse 8. He said, let me finish my argument. For if Joshua had given them rest. Remember, after Moses was gone, Joshua led the next generation. And they did get in. If that was all the donuts, right? If that was all the reward, if that was everything God had planned. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Come on. So bottom line is what? Verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Who? For whoever has entered God's rest, and we know that we do that, what? By grace through faith. Then they've also rested from his works, as God did his. What does that mean? Well, real quick, Jesus addressed this issue. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Jews had taken the law of Moses and added to it. They had rules and laws for everything. If you go over to Jerusalem today and look at the Orthodox community, which we just had an opportunity to do this last year, If you see them, they do everything to a T, just perfect to an extreme degree to what? Watch the Sabbath. They make sure everything shut down. They do everything in advance. They do stuff for Passover. They do everything to a T. But in Jesus's day, it was so extreme about what you could and could not do that Jesus got really irritated. They had distorted the law of God. And so Jesus kept clashing with it. All right. So what does it say? It says, but if he rested from his works, so can we. Jesus walks onto the scene, sees all these people destroyed from exhaustion, trying to make God love them. Because they were so caught up in this idea if I don't do this, God doesn't love me. If I don't do this, God doesn't love me. If I don't do this, oh I gotta do this, and then I gotta do this, and I gotta do this because I have to earn God's favor and I have to try really hard. And if God doesn't see my effort, then he's just gonna say that I'm not worth it. And then do you understand that performance drive? Jesus walked into that performance drive who people thought that they had to earn their righteousness, right? This whole concept I gotta do more good stuff than bad stuff, and if it all equals out, then then they'll let me get into heaven and but Do you understand that's garbage? Jesus walks into these heavy, weighed down people with religiosity. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You guys who are carrying this huge pack on your back about trying to constantly earn God's love. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are not here to earn the favor of your God. I'm here to purchase it for you. And what I want you to do is I want you to walk with me. Come here. That's it. It says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. No longer working for it, to earn it, just as God rested from his. But let me redefine something about works. A lot of us get into this paranoid thing where we say, you can't say I have to do anything in this life. Man, that's works, that's works, that's works. Stop. The Bible never says life is easy. The Bible never says you don't have to strain the Bible never says that you don't have to persevere and that's going to be really hard. The Bible never says that persecution isn't hard. The Bible's very clear. There is temptation. There is trial. There is difficulty. And you know what? Yeah, walking with Jesus is hard. That's why it was called hard rest to get. It is hard. That doesn't automatically make it works. Listen, faith is free, but faith isn't easy. Surrender. Surrender. It's free. You can give up any time you want. How hard is that to give up? Just because we hear strain or strenuous or hard does not automatically mean we slid back into works. Works mean I have to do this in order to earn righteousness. That doesn't fly. But when Jesus sets you free and you realize that there's still a series of monsters in front of you that have to be conquered you still have to fight yeah all right so let's talk about a glaring issue he just mentioned the word sabbath so let me ask you this do you understand sabbath why in the world are you here on a sunday god issued out a law to israel and said the fourth of ten commandments Keep the Sabbath and make it holy. This is for all generations, he said. It was traditionally Friday evening to Saturday evening. So what in the world are you doing here on a Sunday? And why are you not adhering to the Sabbath in its traditional sense? You go, I didn't think it was really that big of a deal. Hold up. Let's redefine. The Sabbath means, traditionally, that you cease from work all the way so that the Bible says in Exodus, you're not even allowed to light your home cooking fires. You can eat, you can't prepare food. So that's why the Orthodox community still doesn't do that, all right? Now you understand that there are even some Christian areas, right? Christian denominations, Seventh-day Adventists, they're hardcore about the Sabbath, Why? Because they're looking at it and saying, well, let me tell you why it's a big deal. In Israel, it was part of the blessings and curses covenant. If they kept the Sabbath, they were blessed. If they did not keep the Sabbath, they were cursed. And it was for everybody. Do you understand? The Bible says it is for all of Israel. It is for any foreigners in your land. It is for young and old, slave and free. And it's even for your animals. Did you know animals were under Sabbath law? Right? What does that mean? It means that you can't try to earn money while you're resting and you just kind of get your cow going on the grinding grain thing and then just right before Sabbath you go and go and then you run and lay down. The cow's like, what the heck is this all about? Right? And he's still working. Animals get a Sabbath. Why? Because it was this idea. We need to build in a rest time for all the figures that are involved. What's intriguing is that every seventh year was considered a Sabbath year. What does that mean? You're not allowed to work your ground for one entire year. You allow it to regenerate. Have you ever heard of a field that has been overworked and it's no longer fruitful? God said, I'm a lot better at this gardening thing than you are. So listen to me. Don't touch your field. I will give you enough produce in the sixth year to handle the year six You're seven when you're not allowed to touch it. And then you restart working it in eight. But it's not going to come up till nine. I'm going to give you three years worth. Don't touch your land. Land even gets a Sabbath. Every 50th year is the year of what? Jubilee. What does that mean? It has all the rules of the other Sabbath years except it's a Sabbath for the community. You forgive debts. You set slaves free and you return property. The community gets a rest, a reset. If you violate the Sabbath in the Old Testament, you die. They'll kill you. You're stoned to death. So, this whole game about, I didn't think it was a big deal. It's a big deal! And so that's why there was so much paranoia that was carried forward. Not only would you be cursed, but if they saw you do it personally, it was a capital offense. You were murdered for that. So why aren't we doing it today? All right, I'm going to give you a couple uh, passages. You're going to want to write these down so you can read them later. I don't have time to go through them with you today. But I would love to lay it out for you. First of all, when Jesus came on the scene, things began to shift. And morph. When Jesus came on the scene, he went head to head with the Sabbath laws. And what he was saying was, listen, I do adhere to the Sabbath. And you'll notice that Jesus did not violate any of the true concepts of Sabbath. What he did was go head to head with the way that they had morphed it. And he was fighting with the way that mankind added to it. So, for example, he purposely healed on the Sabbath. Do you remember that? And they all freaked out. You can't do that. And he said, really? Now you're being stupid. I'm not supposed to help somebody. Oh, can't do that. What's the point of the Sabbath? It's rest and healing. Of course, I'm going to heal on the Sabbath. Don't be ridiculous. Then he's walking through the grains and his disciple he's walking through the fields and his disciples grab grain and they start eating it. You're a Sabbath breaker. And he's like, stop. What, now we're supposed to starve because of this law? Listen, man, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I say what goes. And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I didn't just create rules that you have to work for. I'm trying to create rules to benefit you. So can we please re-rack our heads? And Jesus began to do things that shifted the concepts of Sabbath. But he followed the Sabbath. But what's intriguing is that the New Testament never reiterates the need to follow the Sabbath anywhere. It mentions that they do. And the earliest Christians were Jews, so of course they were going to go, we're doing the Sabbath thing, right? And they're all looking around. I guess we are. So what happened? How in the world did it change? All right, here you go. It largely began with Paul's teachings. Write down this verse, Colossians two thirteen through 18, it is the first reference we have written down of a change. How? Because Paul's writings, if you remember, were written earlier than the Gospels. Some of his writings were done earlier. I know it comes first, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Paul stuff. Remember, it's not an order. Paul wrote earlier. They wrote later. Okay? Around AD 45 is when Paul was writing. And he said in that passage, let no one judge you in regard to a Sabbath day. Then Galatians 4, 8 through 11. He said, some of you are observing months and days legalistically that's in vain and it is worthless in earning righteousness. Romans 14, one through seven, do not pass judgment on somebody else. One person esteems one day over another, whatever. It's all in honor to the Lord. All right. Now, what's intriguing is that after them, from A.D. 80 moving forward, all the church fathers, the majority of all the big dogs, they all confirmed it. We're shifting it over and we're changing things. We're not doing the Sabbath in the same way. So all the history locks it in. Where did they get that idea? How did we shift from Saturday to Sunday? All right? Here you go. First time is 1 Corinthians 16:1 through 4. Paul in writing says this. I want you on the first day of the week to take up a collection for the poor that are in Jerusalem. Remember that passage? He ends up using this phrase of the first day of the week. And everyone's like, well, what, well what's that all about? Did they only have service on the first day of the week? Okay, real quick. Acts 2.42. New, t- new church, right? How often do they meet? Every day. Every day. Every day. So this whole idea that, oh, when did they have their service? Was that like on Wednesday? Was that like on Sunday? It was every day. So it would be us going, hey, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. We're always hanging out. We're always together. But there are certain events that we start marking out. He marked out the first day of the week as a collection day. Second time you hear it is in Acts 20, 6 through 12. Paul is in Troas. He comes in. This is the famous story where he preached so long, Eutychus fell asleep and fell out the window and died. Remember that one? That is awesome. Don't think I won't try that in my ministry at some time. Yeah. Someone will die because I will preach too long. All right. In that service, he uses a phrase that we gather, and he's referring to the first day of the week. That became the technical term for when they would have their service. So in that passage, he starts saying our services that are official about the teaching and talking and reading scripture, it's the first day of the week. Third reference, Revelation 110. John, when he received the revelation that he wrote down, he said, and I saw the vision on the Lord's day and it was the first day of the week. It now had become the Lord's Day. How did it become the Lord's Day? Because when they had their special meetings, the purpose was to say, look how important Jesus is. He's our Lord. What proves that he's Lord more than his resurrection? What day did he rise from the dead? Sunday. That's how the shift happened. And all of a sudden they said, we may be meeting every day, but we're going to have our special days on Sunday. Now, think about it this way. People go, well, yeah, they just shifted Sabbath where they didn't do anything on Sundays. Hold up. In that economy, they can't do that because they lived in a Jewish economy. That means they can't work on Saturday and they can't work on Sunday. And all their Jewish leaders would fire them. No, that doesn't fly. They changed the concept of how it was done. All right. Last key point on that. What's expected of us today? What are we supposed to do? I thought it was for all generations. I thought it was serious in God's mind. I'm going to tell you that God's heart for the Sabbath has not changed. I'm going to suggest to you that the concept of Sabbath is necessary and commanded by God. However, in the liberty of being free from Old Testament law, we have freedom to figure out how that works out properly before the Lord. Whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, doesn't matter. But here's the bottom line. We are neglectful and we're workaholics and we keep trying to grab more and more and more. And it violates the heart of God. We are completely out of line because we're not following a Sabbath. You go, well, What's that supposed to look like? At least two, two elements of it. You've got to have two elements or else it's not legitimate Sabbath. And I'm going to suggest to you that I do not have a legitimate Sabbath. I have a day. Mondays for me are absolutely marked out. I don't do any work. I don't answer the phone. I don't do anything. I take my daughters to school in the morning. I have day free till I pick them up when they get off school. I do both those things in between. It's Lance time, right? Then afterwards it's family time for the rest of the day. We don't have any planned activities. Nothing happens here at the church, But sometimes I end up at the end of Monday more exhausted than I was when I got up. That's not Sabbath. So I'm still learning. I'm still growing. We have to grow and mature in this area. The two elements are this. Number one, it has to be true rest. Okay, that's different for everybody. Because what's restful to you is not restful to me. What's restful to me is not restful to you. It better be true rest. The Bible says, don't even light your cooking fires. Some of us will go, you know what? We're just going to have a whole bunch of friends over its community. And then you're sweating in the kitchen for five hours. That's not rest. Oh, but it's fun. I didn't ask, was it fun? I said, is it restful? Second element you have to have, is he said, make it holy to the Lord. There has to be a component where you like God step back and go, wow, God, look what you've done. I believe that that should be even slightly more formal for our families, that there's an element of reflection on God, what he's done and who he is. Amen. All right, let's finish it out. Verse 11 through 13. This is the easy part. Easy to understand, not easy to understand, not easy to engage with. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. There's that hard work part. Let us strive ...to enter that rest. How? By following the path of grace through faith that Christ has laid out for us, following him obediently. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account last piece that phrase naked and exposed is one of the coolest phrases ever in greek check this out it has at least five meanings and here's what it is first one is it was used for a wrestler move very simply it's this when they would wrestle they don't have the rules that we did the idea was to pin the other guy so he can't move this was a move where you step on his neck and you just go look you move i will snap your neck In other words, you're paralyzed. I can't move. I'm completely laid out. That's the first word. God said, you know what? You're going to squirm on me right on your neck. Look at me, boy. You can't move, right? I will crush you. Second meaning is it was used for the flaying of an animal, cutting its skin off, spreading it wide open. It was used in a third way for when they would do sacrifices of animals to stretch the neck out. Or for beheading, where they would stretch the neck out and go, there you are, exposed, ready for the knife. It was used for criminals that went out to execution. And this is one commentary said this, and they said what they would do is they'd place a dagger underneath your neck right here. And the idea was you can't hide your head in shame. You walk out and you face every one of your accusers and you admit to what you have done and there's no way to look away. Tracking on that? In all these things, what's the last one? I even wrote it down here. Let me figure out what it was. Um, It was already said. (laughs) The idea here is simply this. If you think that you're pulling one over on God, seriously, he didn't get it. You think he doesn't know your move you think you're that sly hey man what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna be like all oh, in you know in church and i'm gonna go home do my own thing but god will be like whoa you're impressive But <laughs> you think i don't follow you home you think i don't see that oh you shut the door oh that's right <laughs> that is a tough lock to pick <laughs> oh it's in your mind that little skull thingy that's that's keeping me out whoa wide open, everything you got, your next move, you're planning it. You're even thinking that how you're going to play the game, right? I'm going to do this much. And then I can finally do some of the world. And then if I do this, maybe I just earn enough. And then I could do God's watching the whole plan. And he's like, seriously, do you understand that when you stand before God, it's straight up you, no excuses, just all you. And he sees everything. If that is the case, then our intentions matter. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's wild what we try to pull over on you. It's wild how we play our disobedience games. And Lord, we think that we can do whatever we want. It's no big deal. I think it is a big deal. And I think that, Father, we abuse your word. I think we abuse your heart. And I don't think it's right. Um, And I think, Lord, that we have to admit where we're wrong. And I just pray, Lord, that you would give us extra grace. That you would allow us to know your desire and your will. That you would encourage us. And, Lord, yes, correct us where needed. Because, Father, we do want to be what you desire on our days of clarity, on our good days, when we can see who you are, Lord, we want to be just like you, but we get stuck into the thoughts of this world. We ask, Father, that you would not allow the thorns to choke us out. Keep them far away from us. In Jesus' name, amen.